Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. What a week I've had. You know times when there's so much to do and not enough time to do it in? I took my own advice and chose my top two priorities of the day and I didn't stop working until they were achieved and it worked. And I think that this week's metaphor was on my mind a lot. So I had to prove to myself that I'm still alive and I'm not yet ready to kick the bucket. Our guest today is a former coroner, Donna Frankart, and she chose the metaphor, kicked the bucket. And so you know now why our phrase is so apt. Believe me when I say, after talking to her, I viewed death and life very, very differently. Her first-hand report is very visual and somewhat disturbing. You must stay with me so that you can put your own label on it. Yeah, you, you, you heard about old Jim? No. Well, old Jim from the dog and badger. Ah. Kicked a bucket last week, Wednesday, he did. No. Well, that's funny, because I was only talking to him Tuesday. He was right as rain. Well, well, that's it, isn't it? Kicked a bucket. Right as rain, he was. Right as rain. Yes, our metaphor today is kicked the bucket. Well, something that's absolutely certain today is that not a single one of you listening to this episode has kicked the bucket yet. Like most metaphors and idioms, kicked the bucket must have had some sensible source of meaning, long faded from our collected memory. So this week we've delved into the cobwebbed alcoves of history once more to try and dig out the origins of the phrase and why and how it came to mean what it does today. I'm sure you're all dying to find out. One of the earliest recorded uses of the phrase in the English press was the London magazine in 1775. The writer explains his return to his ship after a perilous journey ashore in some faraway place to be greeted by his much relieved shipmates. It then appeared in the Dictionary of Vulgar Tongue in 1785. What we would now call a dictionary of common phrases defined there as a reference to death. The actual origins of kicked the bucket aren't entirely certain, but in the late 1800s, there was some literary debate leading to three main hypotheses. The most common belief is a bit gruesome, that it derives from an early method of suicide, standing on an upturned bucket with a noose around one's neck, then kicking the bucket away. One such example is actually recorded in Jackson's Oxford Journal in 1788, describing the process in all its grim detail. This idea gained weight with an article in the Newcastle Weekly Current in 1887, when the writer explained that a bucket was one of the more notorious and accommodating mediums for suicide and a general favourite in Her Majesty's convict establishments and prisons. 
More likely for many, however, and perhaps even more gruesome for some, stems from dialects in the east of England. The bucket in this case was a beam, perhaps the term derived from the French trebuchet. It was used at farms and abattoirs in the slaughter of pigs. Each fresh carcass would be hung up by its hind feet for blood to drain, and the hooves clattering against the beam became known as the kick, hence kicked the bucket. Both of these stories have an alternative and even more gruesome twist, which explains the kick as coming from actual death throes. A much gentler idea comes from an old practice of laying out a corpse with a container of holy water at their feet, a much more metaphorical kick than the others. Visitors to the laying out would sprinkle some on the corpse by way of blessing and purification. There is a similar Celtic tradition involving salt. Perhaps, as there is no definitive answer as to where the expression arose, we might propose a few suggestions of our own. In sombre mind, firstly, and going back to the hanging explanation, it is a sad fact of human nature that oppressive states and violent mobs throughout history have used hanging to evoke fear among those they would want to oppress. Just as Socrates administered his own hemlock, a Spartan soldier would die on his own sword, or a Japanese warrior take the way of Harry Carey. It is perhaps possible that by kicking the bucket that supported them away, victims of these thugs were able to show a gesture of final control over their own life, an act of honour in the face of bigotry and cruelty. It's a sobering thought that perhaps our metaphor today could just as easily have come out of such extremes of abomination and heroism. We just don't know for sure. If you've ever watched old black and white Hollywood gangster movies from the 1950s, you'll know about cement boots, a punishment for double crossers. The unfortunate victims would be tied to a chair and their feet put in a bucket full of concrete. Once it had hardened, late at night, they would be taken to sleep with the fishes at the bottom of a lake or river. Gangs. I was just thinking about those three dead men in the quarry. If they had a fourth, they could play some bridge. You play bridge, Jinx? Not so much opportunity for a backswing, perhaps, but nonetheless, you can see where we could get the kick analogy. Perhaps the phrase has been around for a lot longer than any of these ideas would imagine. The ancient Egyptians believed that the human soul was made up of nine parts, and two of them were the bar, personality, and the cat, body. If we allow the word kick to mean leave or abandon, as in kicking a habit, then we could make kick the back at. Get it? Well, that last one's a bit too contrived, I think, but a fun idea to, um, Kick around. <laughs> Another route that the metaphor may well have taken in actual fact was from Africa. The Gar language of West Africa gives us gives us the words kekwe, stiff, and bo, ending up. So ending up stiff is certainly one way to describe a dead body. In Sierra Leone Creole, the word kekarabo literally translates into English as dead. 
There are records of this word as far back as 1721, and it could well have come to the English slang via the Americas and the slave trade, accompanied by various changes in pronunciation. So perhaps you could excuse mine. <laughs> In the natural course of things, a direct adaptation of today's metaphor in modern US culture has led us to the expression bucket list, which is used all over the world today, which is, of course, the list of things we want to do before we die. My guest this week is author and coroner Donna Frankart. Though her field is about those who have passed on, you may be surprised to know that her latest book gives us lessons she's learned about living. When my researchers heard about your career as a coroner, they became very inquisitive and excited. Most of us fear death, yet something intoxicating happens when it's mentioned. Donna, you talk about your excitement, the adrenaline, even your passion to be a coroner. Did writing your book, I've Seen Dead People, help you to define that feeling even more? And what has been the reactions of people who read those words and think that your words are ill-placed? That's a good question, Delia. I've had many uh, emotions and responses after reading my book. I had everything from people thanking me because hearing my point of view and my experiences that I do believe that there is more after death. It's not such a final thing that I do believe that our souls and our spirits, our, our energy continues on. But then I've also had people that have reached out or written reviews that were a bit upset that were in the death industry and said, we don't all see ghosts and believe in spirits. So I'm, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. I only wanted to share my experiences with the world. And then it's up to them whether they um, will hopefully view and look at, at death and the fact that there is more to it than what a lot of people believe. And then the in-between where they've thanked me because they have realized that, yes, they've taken for granted their lives and that they should really wake up every morning and be thankful and appreciative for every breath that they take because everyone hopes to wake up the next morning, but we don't all have that chance. So we never know when our expiration date will be. So what do you say to people who don't understand the passion you have to get up and go to work when you're dealing with death? I, I know it's very hard to understand. It's, a, it's an extremely uh, difficult and emotional profession to be in. I, my passion was more so that I wanted to help others that were going through tragic times. And I don't know if maybe this stemmed from because I had gone through a divorce and so I felt a little broken. And so I wanted to help others that were uh, needing help. And so I wanted to be there to help these families and investigate the death to rule out that there was any foul play or that they died at the hands of another. I wanted to treat each decedent with dignity and respect because I would hope that if I go through a tragedy, and please God, I don't, that there would be someone on the scene that was taking care of my loved one that had passed away 
in a respectful and compassionate way. So that was where my passion came in. You've told us about the book, but can you go into more detail about how it came to be and what makes it specifically your story? Originally, I had written the, I was making notes. It was my way of debriefing. And so because it's, as I mentioned before, the many emotions you're dealing, it's a very hard profession. You have to have a strong heart and a strong stomach and emotionally be capable of dealing with what you see and you feel and you go through. So I started out by writing just to debrief because we didn't have debriefing in the county that I was working in. And so if someone were to pick up my book, they're going to see the many years that I put all my notes together, the emotions that I dealt with, the emotions that the families dealt with, and how I tried to process and compartmentalize everything that I was dealing with as far as trying to understand and not allow my brain to be overwhelmed with all of this grief and sadness, because it's a lot to take in. And and not just that, but I also did have spirits that would attach to me. And so I was dealing with that. So not only the death cases, the emotions of the families that had lost their loved ones, but also many spirits would follow me home to my threshold, but many would not cross over. Now, this I was told by a medium because I had things that were going on at home. And it wasn't just me that was uh, having these things happen, but my sons were also. So I couldn't think to myself, oh, I'm really losing it. You know, I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things because it was happening at home and it was happening with my sons. So people are going to read everything from. Uh, my sadness, the heaviness of the sadness of, of dealing with the death, trying to keep happiness and uh, laughter in in my life and in my son's lives, because I didn't want it to affect them. Because when you're around death and sadness so much, it's a lot to process when you don't have the debriefing, it's got to go somewhere. Can you read us an excerpt? I had marked a few. Um, now, And within my book, after every chapter, I had a takeaway, because even though there was so much sadness, I wanted to find positives out of all of the sadness and the grief. For example, the reason I say that is somebody has lost a loved one tragically, and even though it was uh, a horrible loss to the and a sad loss to the family, it may have brought a family together that really weren't that close before. It would open their eyes to the fact that life is precious and we never know when our expiration date is. So um, there's one little excerpt I'll just read here. And I put small gestures of kindness don't cost a thing and can mean the world to another human being in their time of need. Be there for them and the goodness in the world just may return to you in your hour of need. Because as I'd said before, that I wanted to show that compassion and the respect to the decedent and the families. And I would hope that the same would be done for myself or any of my loved ones. Well, I think we all feel that way, as it's something that's very important to us as human beings. With that in mind, would you tell us about the first time you saw a dead body for work? Can you remember what those feelings were like? The first uh, real dead body that I had seen as far as working in investigation as a deputy coroner 
I was still following and training with my boss, and uh, it was a suicide. It was a middle-aged man. He had gone through a divorce. He was so devastated. There was so much pain. He couldn't see himself continuing on. And so he had killed himself with a high-powered rifle. And I don't want to get too graphic, but he crawled down into a cubby hole and shot himself under the chin. So there wasn't much left. But on my drive to this scene, and of course, I'd never seen anything like that, a suicide such uh, gore. But I'm driving there and um, the adrenaline is going because I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to be walking into? When I walked through the door, actually, I should back up, and it's in the book, I had a flat tire along the way. So that just added the anxiety because I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're, I called, you know, and said, I have a flat tire. And they said, oh, we'll wait for you. Of course, I'm thinking, how can you wait for me, you know? But when I got to the residence, it was in a home, and they'd already pulled the gentleman, uh, the body out of the cubby hole. He was laying on the living room floor. And when I opened the door, and saw what was before me, my everything stood still. And I compare it to, and I know it's not a good comparison, but I compare it to like watching, remember the Wizard of Oz, where the house is going around, you know, it's spinning around, it's all in black and white. And when it lands and she opens the door, it's all color. Well, this was the opposite for me. It was all color. I opened the door and it was black and white. Everything stood still. And everybody was looking at the everyone, as in the police, the detectives, and my boss were looking at me, waiting for me to absorb in my reaction. And the only thing I could say was, oh, my God. You know, it was like, you can watch horror movies. You can watch these shows on TV. It's very realistic, but it's nothing like being at the actual scene and feeling and smelling and touching death and such tragedy it's that's on a whole deeper level and so i i that call i went through the investigation and the training with my boss but i know that i went and i ended up doing this with every case i would go into a different mindset and i'd focus on the investigation because if i really let the emotions sink in i would have it would have been too tough to do so I went into that frame of mind for the investigation and I had to, my boss had told me to try to put his face together as much as I could, what was left so that we could try to get some type of identification. Yes, wow. yes. And uh, it was so sad because I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking and I never lost sight of the fact that every body that I was looking at on every case was someone's mother, father, sister, brother, somebody loved them and they had a life and they, you know, they earlier that day, they were doing what everybody else does, you know, hopefully laughing, eating, whatever. And so I'm looking down at this poor soul and I'm thinking, oh my God, things were that, that tough that you just couldn't see yourself going on. And I, I would always say a, a little prayer for each decedent, but so after the investigation was completed and I'm on my way home, I'm crying all the way home because I can't believe what I've just experienced. And uh, then, you know, you get home, it's late at night because I'd be on call many times at night. So you, you need to try to sleep. Well, how do you sleep? You're, you know how when you lay down in bed, your mind is going to go through the day and everything that you've gone through, experienced your thoughts. 
And it was really very much of a struggle to try to push those thoughts and those uh, things that you're seeing, you know, replaying in your head to be able to be calm enough to try to get some sleep. So that was uh, every case I went on, almost every case. In your introduction, you thank your two sons, Declan and Shia, for always being there for me and write it was not unusual for them to see body bags, vials, and toe tags. How has your career affected them as adults? And what would you change about their childhood if you could? My sons, yes, they were used to seeing the body bags, the uh, bag tags, the vials, uh, paperwork, everything that I needed, all of my supplies for my job, which I'd have ready to grab and out the door. And of course, the pager, the pager was like an extra limb for me. So I, and I started to chuckle because and it's not funny, but it is funny. There was one night that I was on call, and I was trying to get some sleep. And, and I'm a light sleeper as it is. And of course, being on a pager makes it even more difficult, because myself, I would never go into a deep sleep, because I was always waiting for it to go off. So uh, one night I thought I heard the pager go off and I jumped up and I ran out to the kitchen and my younger son, my youngest son, Shay was at the microwave and he looked at me like, why, why do you look like you're ready to fly out the door? And just at that time, he was opening up the microwave. It was the microwave that had gone off because he was popping popcorn. Oh. Yeah, that's how jumpy I was. <laughs> So they were used to that. And it's interesting that uh, once this, the, my book was published, which was just in February, my oldest son, Declan, said to me, oh, mom, after reading the book, he said, now it all makes sense. I didn't realize how much that you were dealing with. And, you know, it was like they were very appreciative of that. And uh, the fact that I didn't put it all on them, the emotions, I do think that through those years of being a deputy coroner and always, of course, I was uh, instilling in them to make good choices. And, you know, we've all been teenagers and we think we're invincible. And there were so many cases that I went on with young teenagers that had their licenses and um, tragedies would, would strike over things that, you know, they I'm sure they didn't think twice of, whether it was high speed in a vehicle or drinking and driving. And so that was always a big fear of mine. Anytime the sirens would go off, I would be panicking. I'd be texting my sons. Just, I wouldn't say, what are you doing? I would be like, I'd say something to make sure I'd get a response from them. And then if I did, then I knew, ah, they're okay. So, <laughs> yes. So I do think, I do hope and believe that they uh, it opened their eyes and the spirits, of course, they're dealing with that and the orbs and things happening in the house. So their eyes are open to the fact that there is more to life. Life is precious and uh, make good choices in life. They're also very loving guys. Um, they make sure that I'm OK. And, you know, like keep in touch. There were so many deaths where there were people they had grown children, they passed away unexpectedly, whether it was in their sleep or whatever, but they were not found for a period of time because nobody ever checked on them until there was a smell coming from wherever they live. And so that's very, uh, that's very important to get that message out also to 
check on your elders, your loved ones. Everybody needs someone. How does your chosen metaphor, kick the bucket, reflect your life and your life's work? Well, and I, I never looked at it from where it came from, you know, actually kicking a bucket and ending your life. But for me, it was, you know what? We have a date of birth, a date of death, and we have this canvas in between. That's our canvas. And I'm going to paint it as colorful as I can, or you can have it as black and white, whatever the individual wants in their life. But I'm going to fill that up as much as I can before I transition to the next, the next, wherever, wherever we're going. So a screenplay by Gary Revel and Frank Burmester is in production. How did that happen? Can you give us an update? Uh, Gary Revel is my publisher and he owns Jongler Books. He owns, well, Jongler Books, film and music. And he and Frank Burmeister, well, actually, Gary is the going to be the producer and script writer, and so is Frank Burmeister. Uh, Jeff Ohm, who is a producer and director, has worked with Gary Revel, and he's also a friend of mine, and he's been in film for many years. He's well-known in the industry. He's done films, big, pretty major ones, such as like uh, The Revenant, uh, Fifth Element, Shrek. Uh, many of them. He's got like billion dollar box office uh, movies that he's been involved in. So he's going to be producing and directing and he's been reaching out to uh, agents for A-list actors, hopefully in filling the major roles. And so that's where we're at at this point in time. I'm very excited about that. Donna, where can we purchase your book? Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It is available in hardcover, paperback, e-reader, and soon it will be in Spanish. I'm really excited about that. But yes, it's on Amazon. Thank you so much for being on Metaphorically Speaking, Donna. You really have provided us with a lot of deep, deep thoughts. Oh, Delia, it was my pleasure. It was great meeting you as well. And take care, be safe, and be well. Well, I know you will have found that chat just as interesting as I did. Who thought we'd have a real-life coroner on air? Let's get back to our metaphor and think a little more about how we as a society talk about death and also other ways of talking about kicking the bucket. Well, there are many taboos and superstitions about death in every culture, but it's one of the constants we just can't avoid. So it's no surprise that we have dozens, if not hundreds, of euphemisms that we use to avoid the taboos or to enable us to talk more freely about such an important part of life. Our first expression of sympathy is usually something like, I'm sorry to hear that which is a generally acceptable term. After that, the difference between polite euphemisms and insensitive ones can be a minefield of judgment. What stage of grief is the person at? What do we know of the circumstances of the death? When talking to someone about death, it can stir up feelings of grief and make people uncomfortable, but talking about it is cathartic. So we have always needed metaphors to enable us to get through difficult conversations. The concept of death positivity is about 
taking a direct approach to talking about death in general and in personal terms and how that can be an important part of its acceptance. The wounds of bereavement can run very deep and heal very slowly and tact is best. Until we know more about how someone may be feeling, it's wise to avoid almost all of the metaphors we could list. One of the very few that is normally acceptable today is passed away. We know this to be fairly innocuous. In more general conversation, injecting humour or even scorn into the often emotive subject of death can be a very useful relief of tension. There are many metaphors for death based on droll black humour. For example, the Grim Reaper doesn't seem grim at all. In the hands of novelist Terry Pratchett, here's the Reaper with a freshly deceased market trader. Uh, here, your fingers are half cold, mister. Sorry. What do you want to go and do that for, eh? I did what he said. Could have killed me. Yes. I always keep a nip on me these cold nights. Keeps me spirits up. Indeed. How am I going to explain all this then, eh? Sorry? That was very rude of me. I wasn't paying attention. I said, what am I going to tell people? Letting some blokes ride off from me cart and eat as you like? That's going to be the sack for sure. Well, at least I have some good news, Ernest. And then again, I also have some bad news. So, I'm dead then? Correct. Now tell me about these blokes who stole your cart and killed you. Metaphors for death or dying, and there are many, could be divided loosely into three categories, humorous, sad, or poetic. Many of them relate to quite specific circumstances, which is why the origin can be so hard to trace. For example, a person might be said to have cashed in their chips, referring to casinos, or peeled away, referring to departure from the trail. It's fairly obvious what scenario is indicated by his drunk his last pint. However, if these scenarios disappear in the course of our cultural history, the reference point is also lost, but the metaphor may remain. It's known as an orphaned metaphor, and I suspect that our metaphor today is such a thing, especially if the pig farming explanation from earlier is the correct one. Another example that's surely on the way to being completely orphaned would be popped his clogs which is a 19th and early 20th century reference to the wooden-soled work shoes of someone being pawned after they died. In wartime POW camps and other prisons, the expression gone over the wire would have implied that death was the ultimate freedom, and other expressions relate to life as a burden we carry or toil and trials we must endure before passing to a better place. For example, got away, slipped the harness, or with a nod to financial burdens, bought the farm. 
A euphemism may be quite closely tied to a particular type of death in the way that slipped away implies a peaceful end of life, whereas taken may be more to do with sudden and unforeseen death. Gave up the ghost may be appropriate to the end of a long illness or struggle. Poetic metaphors for death include many examples from Shakespeare beneath the elms, referring to the body of the departed buried underground. This is also the picture painted by the humorous pushing up daisies or feeding the worms. Somewhat sad references would also include Gone From Us and Beyond the Veil, although most imply an optimism about life after death in another realm. This idea is clearly stated with Gone to Glory or At Peace Now. Humour, as we know, enables us to relate the death of someone without emotion and is mostly reserved, or should be, for speaking about people we either do not know personally or with someone we shared this morbid banter when they were alive. It may be okay to say that a celebrity has bitten the dust, but inappropriate to say at the funeral of a relative. From the shelves of television history, this classic comedy sketch packs in a fair number of alternate ways of saying dead. Look, matey. <laughs> this parrot wouldn't voom if I put 4,000 volts through it. <laughs> it's bleeding demise. It's not. It's, it's pining. It's not pining. It's passed on. <laughs> this parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, you would be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. That was Monty Python's Flying Circus, of course. To paraphrase Shakespeare, death may have lost its sting, and in a strange way, glib humour can even be a sign of respect for the person who has died. It seems likely that the taboo of talking about death comes from the widespread belief in many cultures that mentioning something aloud may bring it about. No matter how we feel about death, whether comfortable talking about it or not, something that's absolutely certain today, that listening to metaphorically speaking, you've learned the gruesome history of the phrase kick the bucket, but you've also acknowledged that there are better, more appropriate ways to refer to death. Thanks for listening to this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. We hope you learned something new. Thank you, Donna Frankart, for sharing your experiences with us and for giving us an opportunity to value the living. Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at colorful forward slash presenters forward slash Delia or email me at Delia at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. We'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to talk about us. So please subscribe share and help us to grow. Join us for another metaphor next week. Until then, I'm Delia Delore. Goodbye.